Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. A lot of stuff to discuss. Let us get right to it. I understand that the local media in particular, particularly a lot of reporters at the local newspaper, hate Ron Johnson. I I get it. Ron Johnson has been, well, he's been looked down upon for a long time because a number of years ago he had the audacity to challenge um, to, to challenge an incumbent, and, and people couldn't believe that he could beat Russ Feingold. And then six years later, Russ Feingold was supposed to walk back into that seat, and he ran against Johnson, and he, Johnson won again. And over the last couple of years, uh, Ron Johnson has become uh, a passionate defender of Donald Trump. And, and again, I, I haven't always agreed with everything that Senator Johnson has said, but I, you know, I, I respect his positions on different things. But I understand that he's the subject of criticism, and I think some of that criticism is fair. At the same time, there is a mini version of Trump derangement syndrome playing out in Wisconsin, and it's Johnson derangement syndrome. And you see another example of that being promulgated by the local newspaper. And I have a, I have a, a tweet out of, about this, and you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. Okay, so here, here is the deal. A number of months ago, when the pandemic hit, the members of the U.S. Senate. The Senate itself decided we want to try to do things to protect U.S. senators. We want to try to keep U.S. senators safe um, from from COVID. And one of the things that we are going to do is we are going to change our rules to allow U.S. senators to fly, to commute back and forth from their districts to Washington, D.C. We will let them fly on private planes and we will have the taxpayers pick up the expense for that. Now, you, you can you can argue about whether or not that makes sense. You can argue about whether or not that is an unfair advantage. I mean, I think the argument you would make is kind of like the, the president. The president gets COVID-19. He goes to Walter Reed Hospital. He gets treatment. It's not available to the general public. Well, yeah, it's because he's the president of the United States. Yes, the, the average citizen can't afford to fly on private jets. Um, and they certainly can't afford to do it on taxpayer expense. But again, th- this is a perk that the U.S. Senate decides that they're going to do. We're going to let the senators, in order to try to minimize their exposure to the public, we're going to let them fly on private jets. All right. And we're going to let them bill the taxpayers for this. All right. That is the rule. So here is the breathless breaking news story that the Journal Sentinel is pushing. All right. Is it turns out Ron Johnson has been flying on private jets over the course of the last couple months when he commutes back and forth to Washington, D.C. So the, the story is, um, here, here's the headline, Ron, Senator Ron Johnson has been using a private plane owned by his adult children during the coronavirus pandemic. He's flying on a private plane. Well, first of all, again, you got to read to the very second last paragraph of the story to understand that th- this this has been approved by the U.S. Senate. They, they said, OK, you can do this at taxpayer expense. All right. So even if this was the case, it is a nothing burger story because all you're doing is following the rules. It gets better, though, as it turns out. Johnson is not billing the taxpayers for this, even though the rules 
of the Senate would allow him to take charter plane flights, private flights on private jets as he commutes back and forth between Washington and Oshkosh or Milwaukee or wherever he's flying into, even though the rules would allow him to do that. And my guess is... There are a lot of senators, both Republicans and Democrats. I don't know, but my guess is there are a lot of senators taking advantage of that and billing the taxpayers because they're allowed to do that. Well, here, here's the kicker to the story. Johnson is doing this on his own dime. Johnson is paying for this out of his own pocket or whatever arrangement he has with his kids or whatever. Johnson is not charging the taxpayers a red cent for this, despite the fact that he would be perfectly within the rules if he said, look, I want to fly back and forth on this private plane, and whatever the cost is, however much that flight is going to cost, I could legitimately bill the taxpayers because the Senate has decided to allow Republicans and Democrats to do it. He's not doing it. Yes, he's on a private plane, but he's paying for it out of his own pocket. So the expense to the taxpayers is a big goose egg. And this is the story. Senator Ron Johnson has been using a private plane owned by his adult children during the coronavirus pandemic. You know, it, it, if, for example, I'll, let me just give you another example of where this might have been a story. Let's say, for instance, that Senator Johnson was flying on this plane that was owned by his kids and uh, through a corporation they have, and was billing the taxpayers for it so the money was being funneled to the children. Okay, I, I, I don't know how the Senate ethics rules work or things like that, but at least then you could see, okay, so we're, we're taking this private travel and we're billing, you know, the, John, the taxpayers are paying money indirectly to the Johnson family. Okay, maybe if that was the case, m- maybe you have a story there, but that's not the case. The taxpayers aren't getting billed a dime for this. And this is a story. It, I will tell you, it is the type of bias that just makes your head want to absolutely explode. There are all sorts of things that you can fairly criticize Ron Johnson for. I, I, I believe that. You know, and you, you can disagree with him on sort of different issues. But Ron Johnson using a private plane owned by his adult children during the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, yeah, he has. The Senate rules allow him to bill taxpayers for that. He's not charging the taxpayers a dime. And this is a story. Give me a break. This is, and, and you know, and I understand there are reporters who wonder, you know, why is it that the general public, or at least a portion of the public, shakes their head at this media bias. And this is one of these classic, classic stories. You are following the rules you are doing something which actually probably makes sense under the circumstances. You're one of a 100 elected officials in the country, U.S. senators, conducting the people's business. So, yes, you're, you're flying on a private jet because you think that might make you a little bit safer. And, yes, even though you can bill the taxpayers, you're not. You're picking up the tab yourself. Oh, stop the presses. What a story. How ridiculous. Seriously, how ridiculous. If you want to criticize Ron Johnson, there's all sorts of stuff you can criticize him for. But this is the type of stuff that you hope there's a backlash because, man, I'm telling you, if, if this is the best you can do when you're digging for dirt, you, you, you're, you're, you got to hit bottom pretty soon. All right. When we come back, President Trump says he won't do the next presidential debate if it is virtual. We will discuss. Stick around. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 
855-616-1620 is our number. Jeff, uh, Ron Johnson has been on my bad side lately, but this is actually something for which he should be commended. <laughs> yeah, in, it is only in the world of the Milwaukee Gen- Journal Sentinel reporters that the idea that a U.S. senator who is following Senate rules, flying on private aircraft to go back and forth and paying for it himself, despite being able to bill the taxpayers, that this is a news story. It does, in fact, make your head want to explode. All right. The general consensus, and you may disagree with me on this, but you're probably going to be wrong. The general consensus on this is that uh, President Trump underperformed at the first presidential debate. And I think, you know, I know there's people that don't want to believe the polls. And you, you saw his poll numbers did not pick up. Matter of fact, in many crucial districts, in many crucial states, that they, they went down. And in some cases, going down dramatically after his, his first debate with Joe Biden, he was perceived as being rude and interrupting and being bullying. He did not come across well. Now, I understand there's some people who think he won the debate, but most people don't. President Trump, unless you completely disregard all the polls, probably needs a game changer over the course of the next you know, four weeks to turn things around. His next real opportunity for a game changer would have been the next presidential debate scheduled on October 15th because of the diagnosis of coronavirus that the president received because of the outbreak of coronavirus in uh, in the, the West Wing of the White House. The Commission on Presidential Debates announced late yes announced this morning, as a matter of fact, that they had decided to change the format for the next debate. It's going to be this town hall format, but what they said is it would be virtual. In other words, it would not be President Trump on the same stage as Joe Biden. Um, They said that we want to do this to protect the health and safety of all involved. So what they would do is the town hall participants would be based in Miami and the candidates would participate in separate remote locations. All right. The Biden campaign says, look, we're, we're willing to do that. We're, we're all we're all in favor of that. And I, I understand um, the Biden campaign doesn't have to do the debates either. They, in any event, they figure that they're ahead at this point in time and they'd like to coast to it. But they say, OK, fine, we're, we're, we're down with this if this is the case. President Trump says he refuses to participate in this says he's not going to take part in the next presidential debate i'm not going to waste my time doing a virtual debate it is a joke he says and an effort to protect biden to which the 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 people at the presidential debate commission says well okay here, here here's the deal i mean first of all if he refuses to participate we're we're not going to have the debate you know we we have to have balance we can't have one person going through the debate and the other not that would not be a debate but at the same time they also say look there's no law or requirement that presidential candidates have to debate and you can't force a presidential candidate to debate it's up to them whether they debate or not all right, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I Look, I, I understand why President Trump wants to have that in-person debate. He thinks it gives him a, a, a better opportunity to try to make his point, and I appreciate that. But under all these circumstances, the Presidential Commission has said we're not going to do it. So here is my question. If the Presidential Commission on Debates decides to stick to its guns, and say, fine, if you don't go along with this, we're just not going to have the debate. 
What does President Trump do? 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, it, it seems to me that the president can sort of huff and puff and you know threaten to blow the house down. I, I get it. But to not participate in a debate, virtual or otherwise, I think would be, well, a form of political suicide, especially given the fact that he needs, at least in my opinion, he needs to do something that changes the momentum. So if the Presidential Commission on Debates refuses to back down, should the president stick to his guns and say, I'm not coming, I think that would be crazy. What do you think? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. As somebody texted me saying, "Oh, no, they've already agreed to, to push it back and be in person." No, that that has not been the case. The second presidential debate, the town hall debate, is scheduled for next week. Presidential Commission on Debate says we're going to go virtual. President Trump says he is not going to participate in that. Now, there's some talk about whether or not if he backs out on that they might go still ahead with the third one which was scheduled for october 22nd and maybe under the same sort of rules but in that case the biden campaign is saying well we're not going to october 22nd is the last date we're we're not going to go up to the 29th so that's where it stands right now but the idea of of not participating in a debate unless it's in person i understand the president needs a game changer he would rather it be in person but can, can he really afford to back out? 855-616-1620. Let's start with David and Mequon. Hi, David. Hi, Jeff. Uh, so really quickly, um, so what I heard about an hour ago was that the Trump campaign agreed to hold the next debate with Biden on October 22nd, as the Biden campaign uh, suggested. And then and then the, the Trump campaign also said to move the third debate from the 22nd to the 29th. Right. As far as and you Biden know, is saying no to as, that. Oh yes. Okay. So I mean, as far as the virtual end of things, um, you know, I'm I'm not sure how great that would be. As far as you know, you know, you got two people that are who knows where they're going to be located, and you got I think the weren't the people going to be like in Florida or something? Yeah, the town hall you know, participants are going to be in Miami. Yeah, that that's the plan. They're yeah. going to be in Miami. Yep. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I just it's it's just a very different thing. I, I don't have a problem shifting it back, but the other option, and I'm not sure if he wanted to do this, is that you know could he technically let's say. Hypothetically, let's say if Trump was still, I guess, contagious, could he substitute Mike Pence to step in on the on that uh, debate? Then, as far as you say, if we'll hand over the reins, I don't know. I mean, well, I mean, crazy, Bi- but- right now, thanks. But no, see, Biden's not going to do that. I, I mean, here, here. I mean, here's the bottom line. In some respects, in some respects, the it's you know quite candidly, it's. It, it's the vice president. It's the presidential debate commission. I think that it holds all the cards. See, that's the question. It's who who benefits more from the debate. And at this point in time, I think 
everybody, Republicans and Democrats, would say that right now President Trump benefits from that. He's the one that needs kind of that game changer that, that is out there. So if he decides to walk away, say, I'm not going to participate in this, even if they still have one more, he, he's not the one that, that is negotiating, in my opinion, from a position of strength. I, I don't know. I mean, look, I, I don't like the Zoom meetings any more than anybody else does. At the same time, you know, his in-person debate strategy didn't work very well last week. I just don't think that President Trump can refuse to participate unless he can get the presidential commission to go along and to allow him to kick these back. And I'm not sure that that's going to happen. We continue the conversation in just a moment. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Here is the reality of, of what is going on. Joe Biden needs the debates less than Donald Trump does. The debates, the deadlines and the dates have been set for for months. The next one is scheduled for next week, October 15th. The one after that is scheduled for October 22nd. The Presidential Debate Commission has said, okay, the 15th, it's going to be virtual. President says he doesn't want to do that. President's people say, let's push him back. Let's do him on the 22nd and the 29th. Biden is saying, no, we're, we're not going to do that. We've booked these three dates. We're not going to do a debate on the 29th period. So the choice the president has is either go ahead with a virtual debate on the 15th or kind of lose that debate. Then there'd only be one more that would come up on the 22nd. I think if that's the choice and that's the real world choice he's faced with, I think it would be silly not to go ahead with a virtual debate. 855-616-1620. Marcus on the north side. You're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, uh, great topic, Jeff. Thanks. You have an excellent show. Thank you. Okay. Getting right to the point. Uh, first of all, where is Donald Trump coming from with this? Because, first of all, sometimes you cannot meet world leaders all the time in person. Sometimes you will have to do a Zoom meeting. You might have to do a meeting like that. But if you're trying to get undecided voters in Florida, which is a key state to win, the, get back in office, then if I'm him, you're just coming off COVID. You're going to sit there with your arms crossed because you can't have it your way. So now the American people can't hear your side of the story, mm-hmm. and you can look presidential at the Zoom meeting, okay? You can make sure you're looking good, and, and you have, you know, your, your props there next to you to combat whatever Joe comes at you with, and to, but to actually say you want to hold an old-time rally, okay, uh, in front of a base of people that are already going to vote for you, how stupid is that? First of all, you already have that vote already. You're trying to get the uncommitted voters to vote for you and, and they have America have you address the issues while you're looking healthy. But by you saying you want to do a rally and you just come off of being sick, I wouldn't visit you in the hospital. <laughs> Who would do that program? And yeah. so it looks silly at what he's doing right now. And so if he loses the election, blame it on one of these points. You tell me. Thank you. Well, thanks to Marcus. I, and I, again, to me, it's always... Who, who, you know, in any negotiation, and of course, President Trump talks about the art of the deal. In any negotiation, it, it's about who is in a power position. Right now, I think both the Trump and Biden campaigns would both tell you that Biden is ahead. Now, I understand some people don't want to hear that, but that's kind of the reality of where it's there at. That means President Trump needs a game changer, and he needs to do something, in my opinion, to reverse what I think was a disastrous first debate. I, and, and again, some people might disagree with that assessment, but I, I stand by that. He needs to reverse that. And so that means he needs to take these opportunities that are there. Okay, I, it's fine. You, you want to have this in person. 
in. And so you're trying to say, okay, we're we're going to reschedule these debates. I want these two that are in person. But he has no bargaining power. That That's just the reality in this particular case. There is an interesting historical note, too. Uh, and this is correct. One of our texters says, Jeff, the third Kennedy-Nixon debate took place with Kennedy in New York City and Nixon in Los Angeles. And that was 1960. So what, what's the problem? Technology has improved. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I, I understand that, that one of the arguments that's kind of floating around out there is if they're not in person, what happens is Joe Biden could have a teleprompter and Joe Biden could have people behind the curtain who are like whispering answers in his ears and things like that. Well, but before we go too far down you know that, that path, I am sure that we could agree as a ground rule of the debate that you could have, I don't know, a Trump campaign could have an observer in the wherever Joe Biden is and, and vice versa to make sure that that's not happening, even though I, I find it hard to believe that that would. 855-616-1620. Can, Don, can President Trump afford to essentially blow off the debate if he's not able to convince all the other parties to change. Let's talk to John on the north side. John, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Hi, John. Uh, I just think hi. I just think that um, that uh, you know everybody in Trump's camp is sick from the Cobra, and I I don't think he's well now. Why would you go into a, a room, you know, that's you know like they say that's got air conditioning blowing or whatever, you know, with a man that's that's got the Cobra? I I don't think that's fair to Biden. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a, he's, a, he's an older gentleman. You know, if he catches it, who knows? You know, everybody else could die from it. You know, he didn't die, but uh, come on, we're making kids do things, you know, virtual. Well, so, you know, they're going to school virtual. Yeah. And I guess I mean, thanks. I guess I'm I do believe that the technology is such nowadays that I, you could set something up. So it's not like. I don't know, some of the Zoom conferences that we all have had to take part in over the course of the last several months where you have people cutting in and out. I mean, this isn't an unusual sort of thing. I mean, there's uh, President Trump has done a ton of, for example, interviews. It, it's it's not uncommon. You know, you have this earpiece in your ear and, and you're out there and you're interacting with, I don't know, some reporter or some interviewer who's, you know, in, in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and, and you're in Washington, D.C., and you're doing the interview. That, that, that happens on a regular sort of basis. And I guess, is it possible that some of the technology could be a little bit awkward where you're talking about the town hall there? But but yeah, I think you can still make sure that this ends up working. Actually, I think that maybe, maybe by doing something like this, you allow the moderators to have a little bit more control over this, and and, and maybe the debate just doesn't become as much of a as a poop show as that first one did, where all it is is you know this uncontrolled back and forth, and I'm talking, no, you know you're talking. That, that actually the winner of this might be the American people because you actually get to hear that the candidates interact um, at least with the questioners and answer questions. Let's talk to James on the east side. James, you're on WTMJ. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Love your show. Thank you. I called you a couple of weeks ago when your true political colors were revealed as a leftist. <laughs> um, glad to be glad to be talking to you, comrade. Thank you. Anyway, uh, skip the sarcasm. Yeah, yeah, so please. Yeah. <laughs> made a lot of good points. 
I'm sorry. No, yeah, yeah. Please, for people who don't know, every, every once in a while I get these texts from people saying, "Oh my gosh, go work for MSNBC. You become such a complete and total lefty." And I'm thinking, what show are you listening to? But that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> I've followed WTMJ for years, and I see the comments nowadays and everything, and it's so interesting how people flip the minute their narrative isn't portrayed. You know, yeah. I I find your station to be somewhat objective. Thank you. That's neither here nor there, but it's good to talk to you again. Anyway, um, so I've heard a lot of good points this afternoon. When I initially called, I was going to say, you know, two words, desperation and fear. That's why the president won't take place in this debate. He had a horrible performance last time. Probably not going to have a better one. I agree with you. He needs a game changer, a big game changer. And um, furthermore, to your last point about um, the moderator's ability to silence somebody if they don't abide by the rules, Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's definitely a reason President Trump probably doesn't want to be involved in it. And, you know, furthermore, I think like that personality of his is something that appeals to a lot of his staunch supporters. And he mm-hmm. would get a chance to portray that if he was on television. And I also really appreciate all the mentioning of the historical instances where debates did not take place sure. in person. Yeah, I mean, you know? th- yeah, no, th- thanks to call, James. No, I mean, it's look. I, I I get it. Doing stuff virtually with one candidate in one place and one candidate in another is not as as good an alternative. But there's nothing magical about presidential debates. We for for people again a little historical reference. Jimmy Carter refused to participate in a debate in 1980 with uh, Ronald Reagan. It was put on by the. League of Women Voters. In that case, there was a third party. John Anderson was running, and they, in that case, they went ahead and they had the debate between John Anderson and Ronald Reagan, and, and Carter missed that opportunity. President Trump can't afford to miss an opportunity. So, I mean, I, my sense is that some of this is sort of huffing and puffing and, and threatening to blow the house down. At the end of the day, as a practical matter, I don't think he can afford to not show up for that October 15th debate if if showing now, you know, one way or the other, there's probably going to be a debate on October 22nd. It's probably going to be in person, but that's probably going to be the last one because Biden says, hey, we're, we're not doing one on the 29th. Biden feels he doesn't have to do that. So why, if you're Joe Biden, why do you agree to do it? If you believe that you are ahead, say, OK, I'm going to participate in this. At the end of the day, I just don't think President Trump can afford to blow off one of the two remaining debates. He needs game changers, and I think that's his next best opportunity to turn one around, even though I concede that the virtual format might make it more difficult for him to do that. But like I said before, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm offending some people, uh, the, the virtual format might make him more more difficult to do it, but he, he didn't exactly excel in the you know two guys on the stage format a week ago. All right, back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This week's sponsor for the Wagner Home Improvement Showcase, presented by our friends at Great Midwest Bank, is Serta Pro Painters. Visit them at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Let me just share some of the texts we've gotten just to give you an idea of people all over the map on this whole debate thing. Um, Jeff, why don't you let everybody know the truth? that the person that plans on questioning them for the town hall debate has strong ties to Biden. Okay, well, let me back. If, if that's the reason that President Trump 
doesn't want to participate, then they should just say we demand a different change in a moderator or something like that, as opposed to we're not going to participate. But but again, here's the problem. The president doesn't have the cards in this particular case. If you accept my premise that the president needs the debate more than Joe Biden needs the debate. Now, if you don't think that's the case, that, that that's fine. But with all due respect, I think you're wrong on that. I think most political analysts would tell you that. Jeff, and I have several texts that make this point. People could be talking in Biden's ear, telling him what to say. So, or he could have teleprompters or whatever. Okay, well, here's, there's an easy solution to this. There, there really is. If that is a legitimate concern, and this is, this is what you say, okay, we're going to go ahead and do this virtually, but we insist that we have observers. We, we want to have, you know, two people from the, the Trump campaign. We want them to be able to have access to whatever location Joe Biden is at and vice versa. You know, we, we want the Biden people. They're able to have a couple people come into whatever the studio is or whatever so they can make sure things are on the up and up. If, if that's really a concern, I, I think that that's a reasonable sort of thing. And if if you put it like that and you said, OK, well, we're going to participate, but we have some concerns. We want to make sure that we have observers where Biden is. And in, in return, we're going to allow observers to come where we are. I, that That's a reasonable sort of thing. And and then if the Biden people, for example, balk at that, well, then then you've got an issue. Uh, Jeff, Trump is afraid to take questions from citizens. He has no answers for his covid response and his apparent um, tax fraud. Jeff, bingo. He doesn't want to have to keep to his two minutes. Now, that is you know, that is the one thing that goes on, that if you're in that virtual setting, it's easier to to shut people down. I, I'm the guy who back after that first debate uh, to kind of review the bidding. My background I was big into high school debate. When I was in college, I was on our national debate team, traveled all over the country participating in debate. When I was in law school, I was on our moot court team, which was sort of like debate for law school students. You know, we we made it to nationals and things like that. So, I mean, I, I, I appreciate, you know, rules and things of debate. And, you know, in debates... There are there's time limits and there's, you know, depending on how sophisticated it is, you know, if you've got five minutes for a response or whatever, you know, the light comes on and it's green. And then once you hit four minutes, it goes to yellow and then at red, it goes to stop. And everybody knows that you are you are supposed to stop. And if you don't stop. Well, the judges just kind of like put down their pens. There's all sorts of things that you could do to control that. Like, hey, we're turning off the microphone. You know, after that stoplight comes up, you know, you get another 10 seconds to wrap up and then we're turning off your microphone. You could you could, in fact, do that. And I guess I don't have any problems with this. Jeff, I do agree that having an observer would be a good idea to ensure that both candidates are not getting fed information behind the scenes. Um, uh, I think Joe Biden can do just fine preparing and presenting on his own. He's practiced law, politics, etc. Et but again, uh, Jeff, Joe will have a panel of help next to his computer. Okay, well, you set the rules for the virtual thing, and then, you, have, like I say, you have observers. You can take care of it. You can work on that that sort of thing, if that is a legitimate concern. And I hope they work it out because, again, I'd like to see the two candidates debating two more times. I think it's in the interest of the president to have that happen. And I think he's playing a dangerous game of chicken if he says, well, I'm going to walk on this October 15th one. 
if it ends up being virtual. All right, before we move on, just a couple quick thoughts about the vice presidential debate last night. If you did not see it, you are in the vast majority of people who did not see it. Um, I think the, the lowest ratings in, in decades for a vice presidential debate. Part of it is the reality that, that nobody votes for vice president. I mean, you just, you just, you just don't. There, there might be a person here or there who says, gee, I have concerns that Donald Trump is, is too old or that Joe Biden is too old and they might, you know, die in office. And so I, I'm worried about who the other person would be. And, and there might be a very small number of people who do that. But the reality is you're voting for the person at the top of the ticket. That, that's just the, the reality of this. Um, I, I, I watched some of the highlights and I watched a little bit of it. I, I thought I thought both candidates on the substance of things did fine. Uh, I think Kamala Harris had this problem that trial lawyers occasionally have. I want to confess something. It took me a couple years to to learn how not to do this. And you know, I, I would sit in trials all the time. And I admit you you would hear Sometimes from defendants or defense witnesses or whatever, you would hear the most outlandish things. Or some attorneys on the other side would make, in my opinion, these absolutely ridiculous points. It took me a couple years to recognize and understand that you've got to have a poker face during that. You can't, when somebody is saying something dumb, it, it, it does not look good to kind of look over at the jury and roll your eyes. And, and believe me, I've been in a lot of trials where it, it's very, very difficult, given some of the stuff people were saying, not to look over the jury and go, oh, my gosh, can you know? Can you believe that? But it, it, it's not a good look, and you've got to learn not to do it. I, I talked to a couple of my – a couple of the women in my life. I will just say this like this. And the, the general sense – was apart from apart from the just the the discussion and, and the issue, uh, every person that I talked to, every female that I talked to yesterday said they were turned off by Harris, and and it was the smirks and it was what they perceived to be the the condescending stuff and the the sort of eye rolls and things like that. It it they didn't like that. Now the question becomes. All right, are, are you are you reacting to that because she's a woman? See that that's the way some of this stuff is getting played. Yes, she didn't come across the best, but but maybe are, are we being too judgmental for, about her because she's a woman? There's an interesting piece in the Washington Post by Megan McArdle who says, "Look, here, here here's the the bottom line. It, it it's not." It's not the gender. It's just that she's not a particularly good debater. Elizabeth Warren is is a better debater, for example, and it it has nothing to do with the fact that she's she's a woman. But I think it was, I think the nonverbals as much as anything hurt her. I think some of the condescending stuff, some of the eye rolls. I, I think you know it, it's it's again it's less the substance of what they're saying but how they are perceived as saying it. At the end of the day, is it going to change anybody's opinion? I, I doubt it, because like I say, I think almost nobody votes for the vice president. Maybe we should. You know, maybe we should, especially given, you know, the the age of, of both of the major party candidates now. 
And, you know, again, you look at life expectancies, you think like things like that. I think you can make a case right now that maybe who the vice president is is perhaps more important in this election than in any other election. That said, I don't think it's really driving voting. And, and my big beef about it, one of the reasons I think Mike Pence fly on his head notwithstanding, comes across as the winner of this is just it's mostly nonverbals. All right. When we come back, the city of Milwaukee says, well, thanks, Governor Evers, but... No thanks. We'll discuss. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Eric Bill said, this is why I, I walk out of the studio every day at 3 o'clock just kind of mentally exhausted because it, it's stories like the one you were just talking about, your lead story. And, I, and for people who might not have followed, I, I just I sent out a link to this story on, on Twitter. You can follow me at Jeff Wagner 620. Uh, kidnap the governor of Michigan and bring her to Wisconsin for trial. I mean, seriously, Eric, can, can 2020 get any stranger? I, uh, <laughs> I, I'm just... Given everything that's happened in 2020, I'm glad that this was one of one things that did not take Whoa, place. Course. Holy cow. Right. So you got a bunch of these Looney Tunes who apparently come to, they, they, they're plotting to abduct the governor of Michigan, who's been very, very controversial and shut down. Matter of fact, she just got reversed by the Michigan Supreme Court a couple days ago about like shutting down the state and stuff. She's very, very controversial, but she is the governor of the state of Michigan. So you got a couple of these Looney Tunes who decide that they want to kidnap her. They come to apparently Columbia County out here in Wisconsin yeah, train. To, to train and try to figure out how to make bombs that at least according to the story I'm looking at, they, they can't even, they can't figure out how to do that. They're unsuccessful with that, but they're, then of course, because clearly they're not the brightest bulbs. They, the, 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 somebody on social media finds out yeah, about this. Yeah. They find, the kidnapping plot is, is discovered because they're posting stuff on social media, and so the authorities infiltrate this, and these, these guys get arrested like it sounds like they should be. But it's kind of like, really? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, I, it, it is. If you want to see the story, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. Uh, kidnap the governor of Michigan and bring her to Wisconsin for trial. Seriously, can 2020 get any stranger? And if so, I just... You, you don't. You just don't want to be there. All right. Another story. Just let me comment on something that that Eric also said. It is breaking. A breaking news story. I hate to t- say I told you so, but I I told you so. Um, a federal appeals court, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, has overruled a Madison district judge with regard to counting of absentee ballots. Let us review the bidding quickly. I know I've talked about this a couple times, but it is important. If you are voting absentee and you're going to send your ballots in through the mail, the law in Wisconsin is crystal clear. The law says ballots need to be received by, in this case, it would be November 3rd, which is Election Day at the close of the polls by 8 o'clock p.m. Ballots that come in after that are not counted. And, and you know, you can argue you know, the merits of that, should there be an absolute deadline in some states that they allow you as long as the ballot is postmarked that they count it. That's not the way the law works in Wisconsin. Now, I happen to think that law makes sense. I happen to think there needs some closure. But the law says close of business on election night. In this case, it would be November 3rd. A federal judge in Madison, as we've talked about before, William Connolly, has had a number of cases in front of him, and he's been monkeying around over the course of the last several months. That's my term, not the term of art. He's been monkeying around with with 
deadlines. And, and his thinking is, well, we, we've got a pandemic going on now, and I think it puts too much of a burden, given the fact that all these people are going to be voting absentee. It puts too much of a burden on people to get their ballots in by the close of business. So he issued an order saying that as long as a ballot was postmarked by Election Day, November 3rd, it would be counted for the next six days. I thought that was absurd. I also thought it was going to, you want to talk about undermining the integrity of the election system. Uh, And I'll, I'll explain in two ways. First of all, I think it's absurd. I don't think it is too much of a requirement to say to people, especially since you can get absentee ballots now, you, you have to, you have to try just a little hard. You know, you, you can, if you're going to wait until the last minute to cast your absentee ballot, well, then maybe what you should do is, you know, you have some responsibility to go down to the clerk's office and drop it off or drop it off in any of these absentee ballot bins they have. I mean, I think you, you I don't think it's unreasonable to say that, you know, you have to get make sure your vote is in before the close of the polls. So I don't think that's too much of a burden. Secondly, you want to talk about election chaos. Uh, imagine a scenario where... And again, just just theoretically, let us assume this is a close election. I don't know if it's going to be or not, but let us assume it is a close election. And let us say that um, on election night, with the in-person voting totaled and, and all the absentee ballots that have been cast, let us assume that Donald Trump has won Wisconsin by 50,000 votes, just for the sake of argument, and that Wisconsin's 10 electoral votes are enough to reelect him as president. Right? Then the next day... You get bags of ballots, and that 50,000-vote lead diminishes to, I don't know, 35,000. And then the next day, you get another huge bag of ballots, and that lead diminishes to 10,000. And then by Thursday, more come in, and then you find that you know Joe Biden is ahead. Can you imagine the chaos that is going to exist? And, and, and that's, I think, a very, very real-world scenario that plays out. And that was at least a possibility based on this federal judge's ruling. But I go back to the bigger point. The state law is clear. It says the ballots have to be received by November 3rd, close of polls, close of polls on the election day. So this idea that you got a federal judge who doesn't like that, so he's going to unilaterally change the law. I sent out a tweet about this a while back. I mean, if, if that's the case... He should resign his lifetime appointment. He should run for governor or run for state legislature and change the law. But but the law says November 3rd. So in any event... That the case was appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, down out, out based out of Chicago. Originally, the court said we're not going to handle this case because there's a question in Wisconsin law about whether or not the state legislature, in this case controlled by the Republicans, has what they call the standing. Do they have standing? Can they appeal this, even though it's a, a rule that certainly affects? Um, you know, elections in Wisconsin. And the Seventh Circuit said, we're not going to hear this case because we don't think they have standing based on a Supreme Court ruling. So the Republicans went back to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and I understand this gets kind of into, like, the, the legal weeds, and said, we think the Seventh Circuit is misinterpreting state law. We think that we have standing to appeal this. And the, the, the Wisconsin Supreme Court agreed. They said, yes. You have standing to appeal. So they went back to the Seventh Circuit. They said, look, the court now says we have standing to appeal. Decide this case on the merits. And today, Court of Appeals 
deciding this on the merits, overruled the federal judge and said, no, the law means what the law is. So bottom line of all this is that if you are voting absentee, if you're trying, so you've got one of those absentee ballots, you have a little bit of a responsibility. That responsibility is to make certain that your ballot is received by the clerk's office by the close of the polls, in this case, 8 o'clock on November 3rd. So I guess my my recommendation, and it's my recommendation all along, because I'm not surprised at this decision, my recommendation is if you're voting absentee and, and you've got the ballot, don't just put it in your sock drawer and, and wait for another two and a half weeks. Because if you put it in your sock drawer and wait for another two and a half weeks, you and you stick it in the mail, it might not be received in time. You might be in a situation where you've got to actually you know, go down to your polling place or your, and drop it off. And if you, if you don't want to have to do that, that's fine. Vote early. Get the ballot in, regardless of who you're going to vote for. And if you wait till the last minute to do that, okay, you might have to move to Plan B, like I say, which is not depending on the U.S. mail. If you mail your ballot on the Monday... November 2nd, um, there is a very good chance that, and this isn't a knock in the post office, I think there's a very good chance that that ballot might not be received by, by Tuesday. So just be be aware of that. Vote, you know, in an early fashion or vote in person, you know, whatever you want to do, that that's fine. But it's you do bear some responsibility, however you choose to vote, for making sure that your vote is received by 8 o'clock at night on Election Day. That's what the court ruling says. Now, I guess it's possible that could change because my guess is the people who lost are going to appeal this case to the U.S. Supreme Court. I don't think the Supreme Court would take something like this, and I don't think they'd overrule it. But, again, who knows? Right now, the law says has to be received. The ballot has to be received by November 3rd. That's what the law is. So, for goodness sakes, if you want to make sure your vote counts, do whatever you have to do to get it in by November 3rd. And maybe that means if you've already requested your absentee ballot and it's sitting there, just, you know, and you want to send it in, send it in now so there's plenty of time to have it delivered. Okay, when we come back, the city of Milwaukee says to the governor, thanks, but no thanks. We'll discuss. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We are excited to announce our contest winner for Rebuilding Wisconsin Business with Associated Bank. Businesses needed to write a 300-word essay that showcased how they embody being rooted in the Midwest, how they connect with the small business community, and how they support the local community. Congratulations to Black Husky Brewing Company and River West. They are the winner of our $50,000 advertising campaign. Head to RebuildingWIBusiness.com to check out all the businesses who entered so we can all continue to support local and rebuild Wisconsin business together. Very, very cool. All right. Uh, what was it? Two days ago, Governor Evers decided he had to do something because of the spread of COVID-19. So he announced that despite saying earlier that he didn't have to think he had the legal authority to do it, he announced that he was going to essentially close down bars, restaurants, and many small businesses by limiting their capacity to 25% of occupancy. And if you talk to most bar and restaurant owners, they will tell you that that is a death sentence for them, that they can't, you just can't make a living if you're limited to 25% occupancy. 
And nevertheless, the governor issued that particular order. I have been very vocal about it. My big object, I've got two objections. First of all, I just don't think he flat has the authority to do it. And I think he knows he doesn't have it. And when governors decide to do these types of things, knowing they don't have the legal authority to do it, that to me... That kind of makes them dictators and tyrants, and, and that's that's a problem without regard to the merits of it. My other objection is that this, I think, is a knee-jerk reaction that scapegoats bars, restaurants, and small businesses. Now, now hear me out. I understand that there is an outbreak of COVID-19 that is going on, but before you essentially cause the death knell and, and just put places out of business, you, you need to have We'll follow the science. I think that you need to have some evidence, for example, that you've got a, you've got a spread going on in Brown County. Okay, that's fine. Well, okay, l- let's trace it. Where is it coming from? Is it coming from people who are going to bars and restaurants and you know small businesses that people are pouring in? Or is it coming from somewhere else? Is it St. Norbert kids who are going out to keggers and having parties and getting other people sick? What, where Where is this coming from? As opposed to just... Well, all right, we're, we're going to assume it's bars and restaurants. I mean, bars and restaurants have been open at larger capacity across the state for the last several months, and you haven't seen th- those outbreaks. Now, maybe maybe it is the bars and restaurants and the small businesses that are doing this, but it would seem to me that you, before you just order them to close, you have to have, you should have some evidence that that's the problem. And And, and if it's not, closing them down, creating all that economic catastrophe for all those people, it and and you won't accomplish anything. And, you know, you, you don't hear any empirical evidence saying, hey, you know, we've looked at all these different cases that have gone on in, in Brown County, and we've been able to trace it to these high-end restaurants that have opened up and have been operating at 75 per capacity. You don't hear any evidence of that, because I don't think they have any evidence of that. And to me... Apart from the illegality of it, to me, it just makes no sense at all. And I, I hear from people who say, well, you got to do something. He, he, he's, I, I applaud him because you got to do something. Well, d- doesn't the something that you do have to have some basis in evidence tying back to, all right, this, I'm going to, I've got a problem. Doesn't the thing that you do have to have something that, that puts towards fixing the particular problem. I mean, if the bars and restaurants or the restaurants and the, the small luggage stores and the small jewelry store that you now want to limit um, occupancy to 25% of capacity, if that's not the reason COVID is spreading, well, yes, you've done something, but what you've done isn't going to do anything and it's not going to accomplish anything and it's going to cause a great deal of harm. Period. And I guess that's the issue that, that comes up. And, and that's something that the governor wants to talk about. And no reporters want to ask him, hey, what's the causal link between, you know, what you're doing and the spread of COVID? Show us that evidence. On top of all that, this, and I try to make this argument, the statewide one-size-fits-all approach to me makes absolutely no sense at all. You're not seeing spikes, first of all, all over the state of Wisconsin. But let us assume for the sake of argument, again, that Brown County, where you've got a spike, is let's assume that you can tie this to 
all right, bars and restaurants and small jewelry stores and small luggage stores in Brown County. Okay, let's assume that you've done that. All right, that's fine. Maybe that is a basis for the local Brown County Health Department saying we're going to shut down or limit to 25% of capacity bars and high-end restaurants and the local jewelry stores in Brown County. But if that's not what's going on in Milwaukee or in Kenosha or in, I don't know, Columbia County or wherever, what sense does it make to just say we're going to affect, we're we're going to close you down there? That's why I'm a big believer in these matters in local control. And if I were the governor, what I would be doing is, again, I'd be working with the local health departments and providing them resources for testing and contact tracing and all that to determine where the spike is coming from instead of just this, well, I've got to do something, so I'm going to do this, even though I have no evidence to believe that this is going to make any sort of difference at all. Well, the interesting thing about this is the city of Milwaukee says no. (laughs) Let's put a break on this. The city of Milwaukee has, over the last, I mean, couple months, they have been very, very judicious in allowing, say, bars and restaurants to open. And they have said, look, before you can go up to capacity, you know, what's going to happen is you have to submit a plan to us. And you have to say what you're going to do and what your cleaning things are going to be and all these different things. And we will, you know, we'll approve it. And under the current order in Milwaukee, bars and restaurants had until September 15th to submit safety plans. All right. And what you had is, um, 318 businesses that submitted safety plans, they were approved. And though they were given the ability to operate without the current 50% capacity limit. They were said, okay, look, we're, the health department said we are satisfied that what you're doing is appropriate. It's not going to contribute to the spread. You can stay open. You can stay open. Well, the governor's order would have shut those places down and essentially, you know, again, crippled a number of these businesses. City of Milwaukee says... We're not enforcing this order. They say, you know, the way we interpret this order, we think that we're doing stuff that is more strict than the state requires. And since we have these plans in place, sorry, we just don't think this applies to us. We're going to allow our businesses to stay open as long as they submitted a plan. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should other communities take this approach? especially a number of other communities which have their own health plans in place? Should they just simply say, hey, hey, look, we're convinced that our businesses in our particular county are doing the right thing, and we're not going to make the businesses essentially close down? And the enforcement for the governor's order depends on local agencies enforcing it. So if local communities around here decide that what they're doing is fine, more restrictive perhaps than the governor's order, should they just ignore it? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a couple minutes. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. The Health Services Secretary, Andrea Palm, says that, well, you know, the, the rise in the state's COVID cases is due partially to get-togethers in bars and restaurants. And and I guess I, I'm, there, there's probably some element of truth to that, and it's probably due 
to resuming you know, school where the kids are exposed, and it's partly due to more and more people coming back into their offices, and it's partly due to more people going to church, and it's partially due to more people going out and about and other businesses sorting opening. I, so I'm, I'm sure there's all these different factors that are going on here, but yet we've decided, here, we're going to take the hammer, we're going to look at the world as a nail, and we're going to go after businesses, and we're going to go after bars and restaurants. And the city of Milwaukee says, well, wait a second, what we're doing we think is working, so um, we believe that it doesn't apply to us. Let's talk to Chris in Milwaukee. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Um, so I own a bar in Milwaukee, and I'm for this because I'm telling you, nobody is taking this seriously. Every day, we don't offer anyone indoor seating or anything like that. It's just curbside, carryout, nothing like that. That's all we offer. And every single day, someone calls and asks us why and we have to say just for our safety and no one's taking it seriously people come up without masks people come up they they do not want to wear a mask and if they come into our restaurant and bar and they infect our staff Mm -hmm. then we have to shut down for two weeks and then that makes our employees who are basically living in a bubble right now because we want to make sure we get a paycheck we want to make sure that they're getting paid The customers don't understand that when they're coming in and they're going to, maybe they don't feel like they have any symptoms right now, but maybe they're a carrier. They come in, they use the bathroom. They don't clean up after themselves because they're not, they're drinking and they're not being safe or as precautionary as they should. And then they put the risk of shutting the business down for two weeks and no one gets a paycheck. And that's how it works because people are being selfish. So if people actually just, abide by everything maybe we could get over this what has changed since april what has changed since march nothing people have just given up and it's frankly ridiculous because every time people want to fight you about it and the anti-maskers are the ones that are very bold and they want to make a point so they want to say hey this is my right. I'm going to come here. And they want to. Chris, let me stop you for just a second. Uh, Chris, let me just stop you for a second. You you said you you own a bar or a restaurant, and and you're you're not seating people. You're, you're you don't allow people inside. You're no, only, you only not. you only do carry out. Yep. Okay. Um, how, Indeed. Yep. How has that? Been for, so so your interaction with customers is, is very very limited. It's just limited. To somebody like coming up and do you do what curbside pickup and things like that. Yeah, but we get calls constantly mm-hmm. where it's the phone's ringing off the hook with orders. So, oh well, that, so yeah. So, how what sort of impact has this had on on your business? Have you been able to get through with get through with it? Um, I mean, it, we're losing money every day. Mm-hmm. We're losing money constantly, every single day. I mean, people also don't realize that people think just by being a bar being open and just ha- people people coming in having a couple of cocktails keeps the bar open the whole bar culture that made milwaukee thrive so well is dead because people don't understand the fact that people are buying other people's shops and other drinks and stuff like that and there's the camaraderie of the bar and drinking culture that's dead right now so if you don't have anything to offer other than um other than food then what what do you have to offer So I guess I understand why you have to open because Mm -hmm. you feel like you have to serve a few beers to people, but it's not helping. Nothing. It's not working because those places are getting shut down. Well, they have to close for two weeks. 
Well, right. If somebody tests positive, no, thanks. I mean, I guess I understand what you're saying, but look, look, look. Here's the bottom line. One of the things that they've been able to do in the city of Milwaukee, for example, is they've been able to require they've had they've they've required restaurants to come up with these different plans. Because keep in mind, Milwaukee was a hot spot. We were the epicenter for for a while, so we were the the hot spot here. So now they've come up with these different plans, you know, requiring more social distancing and things of the like. And and you're not seeing the spike. So my point is, what they're doing in Milwaukee is is apparently working, and that's what they've taken. That's the approach they're taking in Milwaukee. Hey, what we're doing is working. We're not going to close down the, these different types of businesses. I understand that this is a challenge, but if what you're doing in a community is, in fact, working, all right, then it seems to me that the governor in Madison sitting in his office shouldn't say, I'm going to close you down. Now, look, I acknowledge, again, like I was saying earlier, in, in some of the areas where there's been the hot spots, Brown County being one in particular, it, it may very well be that some of what's going on and some of the problem is because people are getting together in large groups and they're not social distancing and you don't have capacity limits and people are getting sick at the bars. Okay, if that's the case, first of all, you should should know that. But secondly, I guess that to me is a situation where, for example, the individual health department, folks in Brown County should say, look, this is the problem. And so this is what we are going to do to be specific to what is going on in Brown County. Maybe that means shutting down the bars entirely if that's what you need to do. Maybe that means shutting down the restaurants. Maybe it means shutting down some types of restaurants. But don't you tailor the response to what the particular need is, because to your point, you know, it, it does have a huge effect on, on the businesses and the servers. And if you have a restaurant that is doing the right thing in an area that is not having a problem, to just automatically be told that you have to shut down. And again, I understand the order is limited to 25% capacity, but the truth is for sit-down restaurants and for bars, you you can't make a living on twenty percent, twenty five percent capacity. You you just um, can't do that. Um, let's see eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff, I guarantee the majority of the state will just not abide by the mandate. You can't tell me that Northern Wisconsin restaurants and bars are going to limit their capacity if they do not have an issue in their town. That that does. You know, bring up this other issue that I, I've been talking about repeatedly, which is the governor can issue orders, but those orders are dependent on the local local people in, enforcing them. A couple, you know, days ago, we did the story about the Washington County super uh, the, um, the the county executive in Washington County who said to people, uh, stop calling the DA's office and complaining about mask violations. Stop calling the DA's office and complaining about health violations. Stop calling the county sheriff's department. They don't have the resources to go around and do that. That is the other challenge that I guess exists throughout the state where you, you don't have an enforcement strategy and you don't have enforcement resources. You can put the order in place, but as a practical matter, I, I don't know if Okay, tomorrow night, Friday night, big fish fry night, right? Big fish fry night. You know, what? what's going to happen if you're in, I don't know, Dodge County or something, and you drive past? And, and look, the truth of the matter is restaurants are hurting now, period, because many of the restaurants are doing the responsible thing, and they're cutting. Let's not talk about bars for a second. Let's talk about restaurants. They're, they're cutting back. They've spread stuff out. Um, so all of a sudden, 
you know, the, the nights that they make their money are Friday and Saturday nights. You know, you want you want safe times to go to most restaurants, you know, any other night other than Friday or Saturday, because you're not going to see enormous numbers of people there. But so, okay, what's going to happen? You're in Dodge County tomorrow night, and, you know, you've got a restaurateur who's struggling, trying to get by, makes their money on Friday and Saturday nights, and somebody drives past the parking lot and says, I see a lot of cars in there. You're going to call the Dodge County Sheriff's Department, and then what, the Dodge County Sheriff's Department's going to come out and, and shut that business down um i don't know you know maybe that'll happen but in the real world i think it's kind of uh you know doubtful that that sort of stuff is going to happen um let's see jeff um let's see it it sounds like um barrett has more of a handle okay on this than evers and i don't particularly care for for barrett well, I think that's it. Um, Jeff, do you really think the plans are working? The increase will come because they don't follow the plans. Jeff, just came back from northern Wisconsin, and they are putting signs out, political rally here today, so they don't have to limit their capacity. Yeah, that political rallies are exempt from this. And so, I, I, I again, I, I don't know if that's a technicality you can get by on or not, but uh, it, it's going to be a difficult thing to enforce. Jeff, I also note that... That all Tosa bars and restaurants need to close at 7 p.m. through this weekend due to the curfew. Yeah, that's you know that's the other thing that's just you know going on in Wauwatosa. I had some friends who were supposed to go out. They had gift certificates that they purchased to a a, a very nice restaurant in Wauwatosa. They had um, they had reservations for yesterday. Got a call saying sorry, you know we we're we're not going to be open. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Back for more. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 2020 has been a year of incredible uncertainty. What can we possibly expect in the year ahead? We explore that question in a day-long forum designed to tackle the biggest issues that face us, the topics that matter most to you. Tune in next Tuesday from 9 a.m. till 6 p.m. for WTMJ 2021, the biggest stories with the biggest guests in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and beyond. WTMJ 2021 on Wisconsin's radio station. That is next Tuesday, October 13th. I have uh, two hours assigned to me. One is entertainment and one is law enforcement, and we've got a lot of great guests uh, lined up for that. So be sure to tune in. I think one of my segments, the law enforcement one is at 10, and the entertainment one is at 2. All right, as you might expect, uh, the text line is exploding. And a lot of people recognizing the the, the issue and and how – look, I understand. The COVID numbers are going up, and everybody wants that magic bullet. Everybody wants to do – we've got to do something. And to which my point is, well – we, we want if you're going to do things, especially if there is going to be a huge economic impact on that of on on the people that are affected, you, you want to have an idea that what you're doing is going to work. And then again, I believe it should be on a local basis, you know, looking at different local communities or local counties or whatever and figuring out what the problem, you know, is. And then I, I understand that this this then gets into the larger mask debate that I, I don't want to have today because we, we've had it over the, the course of the last several months. And I understand that there are some people out there who, who just think masks are the silver bullet. And if everybody wears their masks, you're, you're not going to have a problem. And again, I'm, I'm not an anti-mask guy. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll wear a mask when I go inside. I guess I figure it can't hurt. Now, the question becomes, how much does it help? And I, I will point this out. If you look at the, the states where you had a huge spread of the virus this summer, it, they had a mask mandate. 
And so, all right, and I have to believe that if you've got a mask mandate, more people are wearing it than, than otherwise would have. But still, you, you have that, that spread. In Wisconsin, before we had the mask mandate, you had lower numbers than you have now after the mask mandate. So that tells me, all right, that there are some people who just aren't complying. And the other thing is maybe masks aren't all they're cracked up to be. Now, I'm not encouraging people to wear masks. Again, I, I don't see a downside to this, I, I guess. But I think, you know, we're, we're just desperate. It's this whole category of we, we, we've got to do something. And I understand that. But, you know, maybe we need to be smarter about that. And this isn't to, has nothing to do with whether you wear masks or not. But, you know, maybe what we need to do is you need to work more on the contact tracing. You need to work more on identifying the super spreaders. And what we really have to do is concentrate on making sure the most vulnerable populations, the people most likely to, you know, if infected, end up in the hospitals, those people get that special sort of protection that, that's, that's out there. So, you know, let, let's concentrate on the nursing homes. Let's concentrate again on the vulnerable populations. Let's concentrate on figuring what we can do to keep people who tend to be older, you know, um, away from this while recognizing that we, we can't just shut down the, the economy while we wait and hope for a, a vaccine. So, I mean, I, I throw that all out there and I understand that it is a very, very complicated and a complex issue, but at the same time, you, you just, we, I get the impression sometimes we haven't learned anything from what we did before. And, and yes, in some cases, people haven't learned anything because they've got COVID fatigue and, and they're going out and they're just saying, okay, I figure I'm going to get this. So what the heck? I'm going to just live my life. And you can criticize that because it's not just them. It's other people that get um, affected by that. And the flip side is, okay, we've got the other approach of just shut it down, lock this down, lock this down without recognizing that that, that really, you know, doesn't necessarily work as well. And that's, I guess, what my frustration is. I've got another frustration, as long as I'm on my soapbox here. Republicans and Democrats agree that given the spread of COVID-19 and the effect it has had on the economy, some added forms of stimulus are, are warranted. For example, Republicans and Democrats in Washington and the president agree that Money to help the airlines. The airlines, as we have talked about before, have just been absolutely devastated by, you know, the effects of COVID-19 to the point that, you know, you have massive layoffs in the airline industry. And what you need is, you know, if a country is going to if the country is going to be able to get back on track, you, you need transportation. You need to have the airlines that are operating. And that's a very difficult procedure right now. So Republicans, Democrats agree we, we, we need to have if you want to call it a bailout. We need to bail out the airlines. I think there is also an agreement that some people deserve maybe another one of these stimulus checks, these $1,200 checks that went out. Maybe not as many people as got them the first time because that, again, was sort of this scattershot thing. But at least some people do. So they could agree on that. So what the Republicans want to do is they say, look, we'll, we'll approve an airline bailout bill. They don't want to call it bailout, but we'll approve that. We'll approve stimulus checks. Well, Nancy Pelosi is saying, no, I, I'm not going to agree. I won't take this stuff up piecemeal. What I want is I want a $2 trillion or $2.5 trillion spending bill, and I've got all these like pet projects that I want to stick in. Look, 
Politics is the art of the possible, and the truth is, if everybody agrees that the airline industry should get money, can't we get together and give the airline industry money? If everybody agrees that a lot of people could really use an extra $1,200, couldn't we agree that they should get it? Let's just pass these things and standalones, and then, you know, the, the stuff that, that's controversial, the aid to whatever, you know, let's put that aside and let's deal with that later. But can't we get help to the people that everybody agrees needs it? I just wish people would get together. The answer seems to me to be so obvious. All right, when we come back, we will talk about Wauwatosa. Lots of different stories from yesterday. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Okay, let's review the bidding. After the very, very predictable, and, and I think most people anticipated, decision by John Chisholm that there were not going to be criminal charges issued against Wauwatosa police officer Joseph Mensa in connection with the shooting at Mayfair in February, uh, you had... You, you had people who took to the streets to protest. Unlike in Madison earlier this year and unlike in Kenosha earlier this year, authorities in Wauwatosa had, had anticipated this. You had a National Guard presence. You had county sheriffs. You had mutual aid. Lots of police officers were there. And you, you had a situation that I think was, at least by standards of other riots, it was reasonably controlled. Now, we'll talk about this in just a minute. Don't roll your eyes when you hear me say that, because there, there were clearly there were clearly problems. You had a number of windows broken out at businesses, Collectivo Coffee, Swan, you serve pharmacy, um, a math and reading center. Um, you had uh, a couple other buildings that were, were vandalized. You had a situation where there was a Speedway gas station that actually technically it's in Milwaukee, but it's right on the border. That was looted by a number of people That's on, and uh, windows broken, at least one resident on 92nd and North. So you, you had this. You did not have a, a necessarily a large number of protesters. Um, they, they tried a couple times to get into Mayfair. They, they weren't able to do that. So, y- yes, you had criminal activity. Yes, you had some damage to property. But compared to, you know, what's going on in other areas, it was it was contained, and it was contained because you had a massive police presence and a massive show of force. The the protesters slash rioters, and I'm talking about the people who were members of the protest who were not going to engage in legitimate civil disobedience, but were going to cross over and engage in criminal conduct. They were outnumbered by the police. And again, it's not saying that they weren't able to break some windows and you had the one gas station that was looted and things like that. But in general, they were under control. And they were controlled because there was this huge police presence that was there, showing me that authorities in Wauwatosa had learned from the mistakes that were made in Kenosha and had learned from the mistakes that were made in Madison. It's why I found it particularly interesting, you know, before last night, that a number of groups in Wauwatosa were criticizing these preparations. Let me share with you the story as it appears in the Journal Sentinel. 
neighborhood groups protest closures in Wauwatosa. Three Wauwatosa neighborhood groups criticized law enforcement agencies' preparation for potential unrest in the city following District Attorney John Chisholm's decision not to charge Officer Joseph Mensah. In a statement from, and listen to this, Tosa Together, Individual Tosa, and Tosa Moms Tackling Racism. This is their statement, quote, It is with great disappointment that we see our city being closed down out of fear and distrust of what might happen. Um, Outside agitators are a concern, but the expected sharp escalation in militarized police practices is vastly disproportionate. Our mayor has decided to take actions this week that show how much control the police have. They show the escalatory tactics that our police department utilizes when controlled by fear and implicit bias against people of color. So in other words, these three groups are saying you shouldn't have done it. You shouldn't have brought in the National Guard. You shouldn't have had the police there in riot gear. You shouldn't have had these mutual aid packs because, well, well, goodness sakes, I mean, this it's just disproportionate to what would have happened. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I swear I'm having one of my give-me-strength moments. What world do these groups look uh, live in? The truth of the matter is, but for the escalation... But for the police presence that was there last night, Wauwatosa could have become Kenosha. It could have become Madison. And, and yeah, I think it's frustrating that you have windows that were busted. It's frustrating that you have you know, some people who threw stuff at the police. It's certainly frustrating that you had a gas station that was looted. But the reason it was not worse was because you had that police presence. And I hope, I hope you're going to have it tomorrow, tonight, and tomorrow, and, and the next night, and, you know, however long you need it. Because at least in my mind, one of the things that we have learned is better safe than sorry. And you can pretty much guarantee that if there's not a sufficient law enforcement response, you are going to be sorry. Kenosha, Kenosha had all the problems because the police were outmanned. Wauwatosa did not have that much of a problem. And again, I'm not downplaying what happened, but it was because the cops were there. And you have these three groups who are disappointed. They are upset that you have an escalation in militarized police practices. It is disproportionate. (laughs) What world do these Looney Tunes live in? 855-616-1620. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My sense is, for people who live in Wauwatosa, and people who do business in Wauwatosa, and people who own businesses in Wauwatosa, they're darn glad that there was a huge police presence to stop their stores from being looted, their windows from being broken, their cars from being vandalized, and they're not too unhappy with the fact that the cops were there to protect them. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Don in Kenosha. Don, you're on WTMJ. Hello, sir. Hi, Don. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, yeah, I live in Kenosha. I live uh, farther west of downtown. Uh, I go through the downtown area and uptown area. These people in Wabatosa should love the military and the police being there to help their town out. If they don't think so, go downtown Kenosha and uptown and see the destruction that these people caused in two days. Yeah. 
Yeah, look at look at the burned out buildings. Look at the thirty businesses that are destroyed by arson. Look at all the destruction that occurred. That then that could very well have happened in Wauwatosa last night, but for the fact that yes, the police were ready. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we went through a lot in two nights of destruction. And when the military came in, yes, it all came to a halt. Yes, there was a couple people that shouldn't have died in the process of people protecting property, but some things happened the wrong way. Right. I mean, exactly. No, thanks. Exactly. I mean, to me, look, I understand reasonable people can disagree with this, but let's let's just name it. These groups are nuts. Tosa together, indivisible Tosa and Tosa moms tackling racism. It is with great disappointment that we see the city being closed down out of fear and distrust of what might happen. Well, have they not seen what happened in Madison? Have they not seen what happened in in uh, in Kenosha? We're 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 just sorry. Look, I'm sorry this had to happen too. I mean, I I'm sorry that those downtown businesses had to close and have to stay closed for the next several days. That's a tragedy. But what is the option? The option is to say, okay, let's let these people roam through these streets. And again, I know it's not all the protesters, but it's enough of them. Even with that huge police presence, you saw windows broken. You saw the gas station that was looted. Can you imagine what would have happened if there was not a huge police presence? Because again, going back to where this started, And the officials in Kenosha will tell you, they will tell you that the reason things were so out of control those first two nights is because the police were overwhelmed. They were outnumbered by not only the protesters, but the part of the protesters who decided to turn to violence. They were just overwhelmed by that. That is the lesson. And I hope that there's a huge police presence tonight and tomorrow, because my concern is, are you going to have more outside people? Are you going to see the caravans of cars coming in from Portland or from Washington or whatever, looking to make matters worse? 855-616-1620. How in the world can you criticize the police for preparing for the worst. We continue the conversation next. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Jeff, I bet the people that are not supporting the police presence, let me guess, the protesters weren't in their neighborhood. Yeah, I think that's a... uh, that's an issue. Jeff, I want to live in the dis- delusional world that these groups live in so I don't have to worry about my property being vandalized or destroyed, and I can come and go without worrying about whether I can get back to my house because of the curfew and yet another riot and protest. By the way, I live one block off of Burleigh, and it was quite maddening and unsettling last night. Yeah, it was maddling and, maddening and unsettling, but if there was not that huge police presence, it would have been a lot worse. Jeff, I'm calling from Kenosha. Tosa has been planning what they were going to do since July. Kenosha did not have any notice. Tosa should be happy that they had the police presence that Kenosha did not. Um, Absolutely. Let's talk to, let's see, Scott on the north side. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, Yeah, my business is right across the street from Mayfair Mall, so uh, I sent my employees home at 3 o'clock. Uh, just to be safe. We, we've already had where our, our road was blocked they, when they uh, were blocking Highway 100 and, and North Avenue. That was like about a month and a half ago. Right, and I, sure. I just didn't want to take chances that they couldn't get out of work or whatever. But I was very happy. I mean, right across, I mean, looking out my window, 
they put barricades up in the parking lot by, by Mayfair Mall, and, and uh, we saw uh, police officers up on the roof of the buildings, things like that. And, and I, I mean, I, I felt like we weren't going to be a Kenosha, and I felt like you know, it wasn't going to be like Madison. Um, I just, you know, I, I think we need, we need somebody to put a stop to it and, and just not let these people just run. And I feel bad for the, for the residents of the one guy that they filmed that was just shouting at him, just saying, Hey, you know, we're, we're on your side. Why are you wrecking our houses? Right. Right. Well, and, and again, it, it's that, it's that whole idea there, Scott, that, I mean, look, it's one thing for peaceful protest, but we've seen where these things lead, and we've seen what happens if law enforcement isn't proactive and doesn't keep a, a handle on this. And, and look, I, I just have no doubt that if it wasn't for that huge police presence last night, that there's pictures today about people going out and cleaning up the broken glass and stuff, you could have mag- that would have been a hundred times worse were it not for the fact that the cops were prepared this time. I think it would have just escalated. I think that's what happened in Kenosha. It just they just kept letting them do it. So the more people that got to do that, the more people that joined in. It was you know the group mentality, and it was it was horrible. So yeah. thanks for uh, talking about this. I appreciate it. No, thank. Well, again, and I I, I want and, and look, you, you you can't please everybody. And I understand that you you're going to have these you're going to have groups. And I'm naming the groups: Tosa Together, Individual Tosa, Tosa Moms Tackling Racism. It is with great disappointment that we see our city being closed down out of fear and distrust of what might happen. Well, the city is closed down because of fear of what might happen, because they've seen what has happened in other communities. I think it is despicable that you have these groups like this that have decided that, okay, we're, we're going to put whatever our social cause is over the, their rights, uh, property rights, and the safety of people. I mean, look at this phrase. They show these tactics by the mayor. My, my gosh, the mayor of Wauwatosa is a screaming liberal, screaming liberal, but even he recognizes he's had enough. People in Wauwatosa have been held hostage since February by the actions and antics of a relatively small group of people. And in part, I think the authorities have not been aggressive, and so that has encouraged people to do what they do. But then this group, okay, these tactics, again, National Guard people closing down businesses, etc., they show the escalatory tactics that our police department utilizes when controlled by fear and implicit bias against people of color. Well, I... Look, here's the bottom line, too. There, there were there were people from all sorts of different groups who were participating in the, the behavior. And when I was watching some of the footage of people, for example, running onto the freeway from downtown before they got to Watosa, I, I saw a lot of, of white people that were doing it. So I don't know that it's fear or bias against people of color. It is a concern for people who have demonstrated in some capacities, at least some folks, I'm not talking about everybody, but an inability to control themselves. And, and yes, if it means that you're not going to have that city burn, I say go for it. Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hi, uh, good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, yeah, I live in the area also, and I'm glad that there was a National Guard and police presence escalated here. But I'll tell you that these protesters came right down my street in front of my residence. And, Jeff, for the first time in my life, I felt compelled to load up my firearms and have them on my TV stand next to me in case anyone threatened my family or premises. And that's the first time my wife and I were kind of, like, worried about what could happen. Mm-hmm. It's really unsettling. Um, well, well, yeah. Now, thankfully, I mean, don't don't go out and brandish those guns because, you know, then. No, you, I you, right. Yeah, right. But, yeah, but, I mean, it's, and, and, you know, that that's the thing. 
people, you you are a taxpayer, Mike. You know, the, these business owners are taxpayers. That's part of the thing that, I mean, I think, you know, you deserve not have to, to have, you know, the, the peace disturbed and things like that. Uh, and I understand the police are trying to find this balance between, you know, we, we don't want to make matters worse, but at the same time, we're not going to coddle people. But, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was a really, it was a scary thing for you last night, huh? Absolutely. It was the first time, Jeff, I really felt compelled to load up my firearms and uh, guard my family and property. Yeah. Thanks for calling. Again, I I just, I mean, you know, you don't want to encourage an overreaction from people in that situation. But, but yeah, I mean, when when you're seeing people that are breaking windows in private residences and throwing objects at police, and, and it wasn't as bad last night as it was in other places, but at other times. But, again, I think that's because there was this huge police presence, and I, I think... The, the protesters understood that this was not going to be allowed to get out of control. Hi, Jeff. I live in Wauwatosa, and I'm thankful to our, that our mayor prepared for all the chaos last night and kept things at bay as best they could. Was so grateful to see the National Guard protecting Mayfair, as that is a very large entity, and help was needed in this city to protect it. I would like to say to our city leaders, thank you for all you have done so far. Please keep up what you are doing to keep us safe, because most of us here in Wauwatosa agree with you, and thank you. Same goes for our excellent police department. Now, my only caveat is, unfortunately, in Wauwatosa, you have some elected officials who have, over the last several months, decided to, figuratively speaking, take the side of, get in bed with some of the people that are outside creating some of the problems and agitation. And now it's like, oh, we, we've got windows that are broken. Okay, let's let's go fix that. We're, we're maybe Maybe if they had denounced some of the behavior early on, you wouldn't have even had that. But the bottom line of all this is, I, I think yesterday, last night was a success. Doesn't mean you can rest on your laurels, because who knows what tonight's going to be, because maybe, like I say, you're going to have outside agitators that are going to come in. Maybe there'll be more people that decide, okay, we're going to try to make Wauwatosa the next Kenosha, the next Madison, or whatever. But I, I think law enforcement needs to be ready for this, and if it means making more arrests, make more arrests. I think the message is the community, the Wauwatosa community, the people in surrounding areas and the people of the state of Wisconsin stand with a law enforcement response to not let people get out of control. This is Jeff Wagner.